got a Bible. We're in John 14 this morning. Uh, before you get there, just want to point out a couple of things to you. One, uh, we will be taking communion, the Lord's Supper, at the end of our service today, um, before we conclude. So uh, we'll be doing that as, uh, as we prepare through worship and through preaching and teaching for that. We'll also have a church business meeting um, immediately following this service. So we'll kind of Dismissed for time for people to go get their children, restroom breaks, or people that need to go to go, and then we will continue as soon as possible there with a uh, quick church business meeting. That's our normal quarterly meeting, and then we've got mission count report tonight at six, and so we'd love for you to come back tonight and hear what God did in and uh, through um, our students and adults that were on mission count uh, this past week, and so two weeks ago now, and uh, so that's tonight at six o'clock, and so we'd love for you to come uh, be a part of that as well, and so. We're in John 14 this morning. We have two weeks left of the I Am Statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And uh, this week, we're in John 14, verses 1 through 7. And as I was thinking through this passage, one of the more famous of the I Am Statements, right? Uh, Billy Graham used to have uh, this verse plastered when he was a younger evangelist. Uh, many years ago, he had this verse plastered in a banner. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It had his crusades behind him or in front of him on the stage. So it's a... It's a very well-known statement, not up there maybe with John 3.16, but a pretty well-known statement when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And, you know, we struggle with this. In our culture, uh, we value and we esteem options. Like, we like options. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's at the restaurant or whether it's at the movies, we like options. In fact, Sometimes we probably have too many options, right? We're just, we're just overrun with a plethora of options. And then you need to look no further. Go eat at Cheesecake Factory today. You know, it's a little commercial for them, for dinner or for lunch or something like that. I get stressed out looking at their menu. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's a, it's, it's a book. It's, it's bound, right? And I like the food, but I'm always stressed out there because I'm like, there's like 75 things on the menu. Do I want tacos or steak or fried chicken or a sandwich? You know, the, and then there's the cheesecake. There's like a bazillion options of those. But it's not just in our restaurants. We like it in our technology, right? So I remember years ago when the first iPhone came out, everybody was, I remember seeing the first time I saw one, I was like, wow, this is so cool. Well, now there's like all kinds of different smartphones and technology and tablets and things like that. It's not enough. We don't just want one brand. We've got several brands to choose from and various opinions about those brands. And then there's television. Uh, the, the myriad of channels. Some of you remember, it wasn't that long ago. I remember when I was a kid, you had to get up, you'd go over there, and you'd, you'd turn the channel, and it'd make the big click, click, click thing, and it looked like somebody was back there turning the pages of a book, and there were 13, right? You got to 13, then I think the next channel was like UF or something it was called, and then you had to start over 2 through 13. And now we've got tons of channels. Not only that, you can do a way with cable all, all together, and you can watch Netflix, and you can do Hulu, or you can do Amazon, and you can do all these other options, because we value options. We value options, even in church, right? People don't just go to church anymore. They shop for a church. We like our options. What kind of music are they going to have? What's the style going to be like? What's the preaching going to be like? Is it going to be short? Is it going to be long? You know what you're going to get here. <laughs> but we like our options. We like our various styles and all these different things. And in fact, we live in a very pluralistic society. We don't just like our options when it comes to those things. People like their options when it comes to religion, when it comes to faith, when it comes to matters such as these. You can be secularist or atheist or agnostic. You can refuse to be put in a category altogether. If you're religious, there are, religious, there are a host of religious options, many that have been around for many centuries. 
You can be Buddhist or you can be Muslim or you can be Christian or you can be into it goes on and so on and so forth. Even within our religion, if you'll call it that, Christianity, there's all these different what denominations, options. And our society's filled with them. And in fact, in some ways, the worst thing you can do in our society is to take options away from you. Right? So in the business world, they call that a monopoly, right? And they bust those sort of things up. In the religious world, they call you a bigot, right? And so the worst thing in many people's eyes that you can do is take away options. But deep down, we all know sometimes we're faced with situations in life when there's really only one real choice. There's many choices, but maybe only one that, that works. And in those situations, we should be thankful that we have an option at all, much less how many do we have. When it comes to the ultimate question in life, which is how to know God, how to have a relationship with God, how to know God is pleased with you, how to be in favor with God, how to be connected to God, how to live in relationship with God, all those sort of things. How to know when you die you're going to go to heaven and not be judged for your sin. Those sort of questions. The ultimate question in life, the God question. The Bible doesn't really give us an option. It gives us a way. There's the appearance of many options in our culture, but they're all trapdoors, mirages, phony. There's one real option. It's really a way if you, if you want to truly God. And at the end of the day, our deepest longings can't be satisfied with the things of the world or the various religions of the world, but can only be satisfied, Jesus is going to show us this morning, in Him, in Jesus. He alone is the way, the truth, the life. So look with me at John 14. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 in John 14. This is Jesus speaking. He's with His disciples. I'll give you the context in a minute. Let's listen to his words first. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now here's our context. This comes on the heels of John 13, of course, where Jesus tells the disciples that one of them is going to betray him. That's pretty harsh news when you've been traveling with a guy three and a half years or so here, been discipled by him, invested in him, and, and one of your group at your little small table is told you're going to betray Jesus. He also tells them in John 13 that he is going somewhere they cannot go right now, speaking of his death and his ascendance to the Father. And then, then Peter is told that he's going to deny Jesus three times. That's a lot of hard news in one chapter. One of you is going to betray me. I'm going away. You can't come with me right now. And by the way, the vocal leader of the group, the one that tends to speak out most, he's actually going to deny me three times. And so in the midst of all that, Jesus is asking them to trust him because the world as they know it is blowing up all around them. Let me ask you, have you ever had your world rocked or blown up with, with difficult news? That's what's happening to them. Of course, and of course you have. Of course you have. 
this broken world is full of scary news, and it was no different for the disciples. Jesus encourages them in the midst of all that to believe. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying, he's really inviting them to trust me. You believe in God, believe in me, trust in me. I know it's a lot going on here, guys. I know your mind is flooded with questions and thoughts of what I'm telling you, but you need to trust me. And when the world around us seems to be shrinking and caving in and shaking and about to fall apart, Jesus looks at the believer and he says, believe. Believe in God. Believe in me. Trust me. And then Jesus points their eyes heavenward. He makes them a promise, right? He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are, are many rooms. So first of all, he says, there's a place, right, for you. In other words, heaven is real. I'm going to my Father's house. He's referencing the presence of God. He's referencing what we would refer to there as heaven. And why does he start talking about heaven and his father's house here? Because that's where he's going, right? They want to know where he's going, and he's trying to tell them where he's going. That is where he's going. He's about to go back to the father, where he came from. And at the same time, it's what their hearts long for and what their hearts will one day, as they trust in him, will have. And when your world is rocked and when you're reminded of how fragile life is, believers need to always remember Heaven is a real place. A real place. Not just something to be saying about in hymns or Southern Gospel songs. It's a real place. And we need to talk about. And we need to think about. And we need to read about. The Bible urges us to put our eyes heavenward. And at the same time, he says, not only is it, there's, this, there's this place called heaven, my father's house, but he says, I've made room for you. There's preparations have been made. There's room for you. It wouldn't matter much if there was a heaven if there wasn't room for us. That wouldn't be very exciting. It would be depressing. Hey, there's a heaven, but you can't go. That would not be good news at all. Jesus looks at these believers and he says, I've made room for you. I've provided space for you. Heaven is for you too. I'm going, but you're coming one day. In other words, he also says in other places, I'm coming back for you. And believer, heaven is a real place. We know Jesus is preparing this place and has made room for us there. And it is a place, the Bible tells us in other places, that it's without sin that is without sickness, that is without hurt, a place different than this place, a better place, a place he has provided. But the most important thing about that place that he has prepared is his presence. He says they will be in his presence. And there I will be, you'll be with me. You'll be with me. You'll come and you'll be with me. What makes heaven heaven is that Jesus is there. Where Jesus is, we get to be as well when we have trusted in him. And when you're a believer, that's why you long for. You long to be in his presence. Heaven's not heaven if Jesus is not there. Can you imagine if your favorite concert artist came to town, right? Okay, and, and you're like, woohoo, I'm so excited. And you show up, and they're a no-show, you know? Like George Jones used to be in the day. They called it no-show Jones, right? And you showed up, and they're not there. They've they, they skipped out on the, whole, on the whole thing. You know, the opening acts there. And they're good and all, but you're ticked because you paid whatever, 100 bucks, whatever, for your ticket, and the artist just didn't show up. That, that would, you'd be like, That's not what I'm here for. I, I, everything else is great, right? Uh, the sound is great. The lights are great. It's a beautiful building. I'm at the Amway, whatever. The opening act was good. It was solid. Never heard of them, but it was good. But so-and-so's not here. This is not why you would be frustrated. You would be angry even because you didn't go to have an experience at the Amway. But sometimes when you hear Christians talk about heaven, oh man, it's pearly gates and golden streets. and It's all the glitter and glamour, but 
with Jesus and the gospel of Scripture heart, it's about being with Jesus. Or you don't understand what heaven is. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there, because God is there. Take away the presence of God, take away the presence of the Lamb of God, you no longer have heaven. You can have hell, but you wouldn't have heaven. And the believer longs in our heart, and Jesus knows that. He knows ultimately they long to be with Him, because they are His and He is theirs. And here we have Jesus encouraging believers with the promise. There's a place that I have prepared in my presence for you. That's heaven. The truth is, when you're beat up on in this world, and when you're weary and troubled and hurting, and bad news keeps coming in, we all long for a better place. Even a, even a non-Christian, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Christ, even a non-Christian can go, there has to be more than this, a better place than this, a better way than this. We can look around the world that seems to be sometimes coming apart at the seams and know this world's brokenness is obvious and it weighs on us because we weren't created for brokenness but to know and love and serve God we're made for God and his presence and it is sin that has made the world the way it is and we know that God is at work in the world that's why Jesus came to reconcile people to himself and one day heaven is coming to earth the old's going to pass away the new heaven and the new earth will come and believers We'll live in a sinless, hurt-free, pain-free, sick-free, death-free place in God's presence with Jesus forever. And ultimately, that's what everyone, that's the deepest need every human being on the planet has, is to know and be near God. Now notice, Thomas, Thomas says, how can we know the way to this place? We don't even know the place, right? He's just not getting it. And we all have those first century disciple moments when the way is standing in front of us and we're like, what's the way? I'm not sure what the way is. (coughs) Jesus says, guys, I've been with you all this time and you still don't get it. That's kind of what he's saying. Listen, I'm the way. I am the truth. I am the life. This is about me, right? You're on the right track here. And Jesus is claiming here in this statement, this very famous statement, John 14, 6, to be unique from every other rabbi or teacher or person who has ever lived. He's claiming to be exclusive in his nature. Jesus Christ is saying, I'm the unique Son of God and the only way to heaven, the only way to God, the only way to peace with God, to be reconciled with God. Let's break that down. First thing he points, we see here is the uniqueness of Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's showing he's unique from every other person. I'm not a way. I'm not, I don't impart some truth, Right? I I don't just coach your life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. In other words, there is no way apart from me. There is no truth apart from me. There is no life outside of me. I am it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, when he says, I am the way, as the way, he's saying, I am the way to God, to be reconciled to him, the way to have access to him. This obviously makes the point that we need a way to God in the first place, right? That we must be separated, as we talked about, by our sin. That we're disconnected. As Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities or your sins have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We need a way back to God. And Jesus is the way back, the way to, the way into relationship with the Father. And all through the Old Testament, the the narrowness, you might call it, of getting to God is portrayed. Only the priests, right, 
could approach in the temple. And only at a particular time. Man couldn't simply come up with a way to approach and worship God. God said, here's how you will worship. Here's how you will approach me. All along the way, he's showing the narrowness of the way. You think about the, the, the veil in the temple separating man from God. Now in the New Testament, Jesus makes it clear that all of that in the Old Testament, all that symbolism, all that was going on through the law, was getting you ready for me. I am the actual way. I am that narrow way. And if you want to be right with God, connected with God, there's good news. There is a way. And the way is the person, and it's me, is what Jesus is saying. Now think for one moment, in light of the biblical narrative, how amazing just that is at all. That there is a way back to God. Think about it. That the God who created the universe, created you and me, created all of us, created the very first people, right? And put them in a perfect environment. And they rebelled. They decide, these people that he made out of dirt said, we know better than you do. We'll manage our lives from here. And he could have just, you know, I'll start over. <laughs> could have. It's kind of, could have done that. But instead, he, he knew going into it. He knew going into it that was going to happen. He knew going into it that God the Son would come to redeem those sinful people. It's amazing when you think about how wicked humanity is and how holy God is, how loving He is, and how we have spurned that love that there's a way at all. And Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the way back to God. He also says, I am the truth. Now, you cannot understand the most fundamental truths apart from Jesus. I want you to understand that because the most fundamental truth is about God. Right? Because Jesus is the truth, He is the way. It's all connected. He is the way to God because He is the truth. He's the truth of God. He is the true God. He is the truth. If He wasn't the truth, He wouldn't be the way. It all builds. Jesus is the ultimate revelation sent from God, the ultimate truth of God, the ultimate truth sent from God. He is God in the flesh. In a pluralistic society with many quote-unquote gods, people may wonder, which is the real God? Right? Is there such thing as one real God? And Jesus says that He reveals the real God. He is the truth. That's what He's talking about. He teaches the truth about God. He lights the way and reveals Him to us clearly. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson notes that Jesus, I love the way he phrases this, narrates God. He is, the, he is God's gracious self-disclosure. His Word made flesh. Apostle John says it this way in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. No one's ever seen God, but the only God who is at the, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Jesus has come and He's made God known. Nobody's ever seen God. Then Jesus shows up and makes God known. The truth. And truth starts with God. People today talk about, well, what's true for you and what's true for me and what's your truth and my truth? Well, Josh, that's true for you, but maybe that's not their truth. As in we can like, monopolize truth or have our own truth. And you and I, don't, we don't get to stake a claim on truth as ours or theirs. or We don't get to shape the truth. I can't say, you know, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is great for you. But for me, I'm going with 5. Right? You'd say, well, you're not good at math. Right? <laughs> Truth doesn't work that way, right? Neither does God in His truth. 
And the pinnacle of all truth is that of God, as creator, as the holy one, as the king of the universe, all-knowing, all-powerful. What is more important than truth about him and who he is? That truth matters a whole lot more than what is two plus two. Yet we seem to be willing to negotiate that truth away. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am the truth. You want to know truth? I've got the monopoly. I am the truth. We can't know the true God apart from Jesus. You can be religious. I can be moral. We can be a pretty good people. You can be a great wife or a great husband, a great son or daughter. You can be great at your job and a great neighbor. But you and I, we can't know the true God apart from Jesus. And if someone claims to have hold of knowledge of God that is separate from Jesus, what they have is built on a lie. And by Jesus, we mean the Jesus as revealed in the Scriptures. Suppose truth about God, built on other people, built on experiences, built on various faiths and visions and so on and so forth. Listen, if it's not built on Jesus as revealed in the Bible, it's built on a lie. Jesus is the truth and, and God has given us His Word to even let us understand what we need to know about Jesus. But Jesus says, I'm the way. Jesus says, I am the truth. And I, you can know I'm the way because I'm the truth, but you can also know I'm the way because I am the life. He is the way to God because he alone is the life and imparts life from God. He is the resurrection and the life, as we saw last week. He has the power over death. He alone imparts spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. You can't really have life, and I can't really have life, and we can't escape death apart from Without Jesus, we are spiritually dead. We die physically, and we will suffer the second death, the Bible tells us, eternal death in hell in Revelation 21. But with Jesus, we get victory over death. And it doesn't, death doesn't get the last say. We come to life spiritually. We live forever with Jesus. Jesus is the life. He makes us spiritually alive and connects us to God in a relationship with Him. Lots of religions... Lots of experiences will make you, quote-unquote, feel alive. But only Jesus will make you alive. Only through Jesus can you get access to the truth of God and the life of God. Therefore, He and He alone is the way to God. Now, just a bit. Believers in the room will take the Lord's Supper together. It's a time that we will remember the price that was paid so that we can be made right with God. As the way, as the truth, as the life, Jesus came to lay down his life, lived a sinless life, perfectly obeying all the truth of God and displaying the truth of God. Goes to the cross, dies in our place, rises from the dead, bears our sin, bears our guilt, bears the punishment we deserve. Three days, buried in a tomb, three days later, rises from the dead so that there can be a way to God and we can have life imparted to us from God. We, that's the good news of the gospel. And that's what we celebrate and commemorate and remember when we take the Lord's Supper together. And many people, they don't really have problems with most of what I just said as long as we kind of keep it to ourselves. But they really have problems with how Jesus clarifies what he means. And that's the exclusivity of Jesus. You believe Jesus is unique. You believe Jesus can save you. You believe Jesus changes lives. That's great. But Jesus says, and by the way, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's the exclusivity of Jesus. There are no exceptions. No one comes to the Father. In other words, no one gains access to God except through Him. He's our only hope of reconciliation and restoration and forgiveness of life and truth and a way back to God. 
there are no exceptions. As, as it said in Acts 4.12, Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The, the New Testament is very emphatic on this, that there's only, there's only one way, right? The exclusivity that Jesus and Jesus alone saves. And through power, you may gain control. Through money, you may gain influence. Through comfort, you may gain rest. Through pleasure, you may gain temporary happiness. Through learning and education, you may gain much knowledge. But you will only get to the Father, to the Creator, to God, through Jesus. He alone is the way. He alone is the truth. He alone is the life. And people struggle with this. How arrogant something. How can you say that? Listen, if there is another way other than Jesus for someone to be saved and to know God, how cruel, how cruel would God the Father have to be to send His Son to die on a cruel cross and bear His wrath if there was another way? That's not love. That's sadistic. Hey, there's a lot of other ways people can get to it. But just for kids, the very nature of the gospel story tells us there has to only be one way. There can't be more than one way, and we still believe in a loving God. It doesn't work that way. It's inconceivable to think that. If there was another way, the way that we see would have been a hard pass. You're like, no thanks. Let's go. There's like other ways. But no, there's only one way. And people struggle with that, but we have to understand the context of our sin, of our shame, of our guilt before God. And when we understand that, when we frame that for our unbelieving friends in that context, we need to understand it's, it's not like you're in this building and I told everybody like, hey, there's only one way to get out. And we've all got to get in a single file line and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, no, it's, it's, it's like the building's on fire. And there's only one place that you can get out because of the fire. And the fireman comes in and says, listen, there's only one way out. It's through this window, down this ladder. Nobody's going, well, I don't like my options. You're like, get out of my way, right? I want you. We have to understand the context. That the world is on fire, so to speak. That the world is in trouble. And be thankful that there is a way at all. It's exclusive nature. Here's some common objections that I want to hear. Here's some common objections. Three common objections. One is, it's narrow-minded. 2018, Pastor. I like what Pastor Tim Keller says about this. He says, we are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. And that's true. Even an atheist or an agnostic is exclusive in their own ways. Some, for instance, are exclusive by saying all faiths are wrong, for instance. Well, that's exclusive. Well, this, these, or just this, or if you believe this, you're wrong, but if you believe this, you're... Anytime we're getting exclusive, everybody's exclusive in some way. And by believing something at all, you are in fact saying something else isn't so. Right? So if I believe strawberry ice cream is best, and are I being there reminded about chocolate and vanilla? Then someone will say, no, 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 it's only there reminded if you think chocolate and vanilla are bad and everyone else has to have strawberry like you. Now then you're being it's okay. But what if all the chocolate and vanilla ice cream in the world was poisonous? Would I still be narrow-minded to say everybody should enjoy strawberry like me? By the way, this is not my favorite ice cream. So. <laughs> but do you get my point? When we understand the context of the situation, it's not narrow-minded at all. In fact, it's loving. 
So we can't look at a world and say, hey, whatever works best for you. Hey, if that's working for you, if that's holding your marriage together, if that's making you feel better, if that's helped you this way and that's helped you that way, great. I'm glad it works for you. Well, in the end, other ways don't work. Yes, it might seem narrow-minded some, but it's actually loving. Another objection, what about good people of other faiths? In other words, how can you say a morally upright person who happens to worship a different God is not going to heaven? Well, first of all, we did say that. We didn't write that. I did say that. Jesus is clearly saying that. Jesus says no one comes to the Father except through him. No one comes except through him. That means no matter the morality or how popular the religion, no one means no one. If that means some, some, if that means that some squeak through on morality despite their idolatry, then really it all falls apart and Jesus is no longer holding to his claim and he's no longer the way, the truth, and the life. And it's no longer that no one comes to the Father except through him. Listen, it's not just that our moral friends of other religious faiths, it's not just that they need to believe Jesus. It's also that moral Baptists and moral Methodists and moral Episcopalians and moral Catholics and moral unit. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. It's for everybody. We all believe in something. We are all trusting in something. For some, they're holding and believing too that there's, that there's not going to be a God at all or that, or that there's no judgment for sin. Some are hoping in a God of their own making, right? They may even cut and paste some Bible verses to go with this God. But He only exists in their imagination because He never offends them. He never tells them they're wrong. He always caters His law to their behavior. They never cater their behavior to His law. He's a God of their imagination. And they are just as lost and in need of reconciliation through Jesus to the one true God as an unbeliever of another faith. Only through Jesus. The last common objection is, what about people who've never heard of the gospel? Surely that disproves your point. They've never even heard the name of Jesus. This one really trips people up, right? It's a hard question in many ways because it, it should actually break our heart that the question even has to be posed. What if they never hear? Isn't there another way for them? Apostle Paul kind of helps us answer this in Romans 1, verses 18-21, when he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. To who? To everybody in creation. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the epidemic of humanity. The point is, God has revealed Himself to all people through creation to some degree. And the bit of revelation that has been given has been rejected. All are guilty, therefore all need a Savior. Jesus is the only Savior. So apart from faith in Jesus, there can be no salvation. All people need to hear about Jesus. This is why Jesus says to the church before he ascends to heaven, go make disciples, go into every nation. He didn't say, hey, camp out right here. 
Right? No, go into all nations and it acts when the Holy Spirit comes. It's what? Right? Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth, right? It's always expanding outward. It's never encamped. Listen, if people are only accountable to God for their sin, if they know the gospel and hear about Jesus, then missions is a horrible idea. What was Jesus thinking with the Great Commission? Because if you shared your faith much, you know more people seem to reject you than accept you. Look at the parable of the soils. Not that it's, a, it's not like a perfect statistic or anything, but you look at it, there's like three ways to, you know, reject the gospel and one way to accept it. And we, we seem to see that a lot, right? People hear the gospel a lot of times and they don't want it. They reject it. It's, it's a miracle of God when someone believes. So why in the world would Jesus tell us to go make disciples of all nations, to preach the gospel to every creature? Why in the world would we do world missions and take the gospel and share the gospel with people if we're only exposing them to their guilt and making them further guilty and if they reject the gospel well, now they're going to hell? Whereas beforehand they were good. It nullifies it. Dr. David Platt, president of the International Mission Board, has said our role is to eliminate the question altogether. Right? It's sobering to think that over 2 billion people in the world have not heard the gospel. 2 billion. They don't know about Jesus, but they see a sunrise. They see the reality of God in many ways and His glory, this creative nature what they see just like you and I have. And they choose sin. And they need Jesus. They need the gospel. For it is the gospel that is the power of God and the salvation. And the exclusivity of Jesus should motivate you and me all the more to get serious about reaching the lost. Because there is no other way. There is no other way. They have no other options. If this text is true, if John 14, 6 is true, you need to know that you're only Your only hope of knowing God, being connected to God, being restored to our relationship with God is Jesus. Your only way to have life is Jesus. Your only way to know that you're walking in the truth is Jesus. You need Jesus. If you've never turned from your sin and embraced Jesus by faith, I invite you to do that today. And believer, this makes Jesus the best news in the world. What does it say about us if we believe John 14, 6? we don't share Jesus. If we don't leverage our lives and our church to make Him known. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our family members, the unreached peoples around the world need Jesus. And our mission is to mobilize and get Him and His message to them. And a church that is serious about making Jesus known to the community, to the city, to the world, will be willing to put everything on the table to leverage everything to reach some if we're serious about the gospel. Let me ask you, what are you willing to give up to reach people for Jesus? And what are you not willing to give up to reach people for Jesus? For you and me, for whatever is in the not category, the biblical word for that is, I would say, an idol. It's what we're obeying instead of Jesus in the moment. It's a functional life. It needs to be placed on an altar. We need to die to it, so to speak. So we need to put our time on the altar. And our talents on the altar and our abilities and our treasure and our, 
All those things. We need to be willing to leverage our time and leverage our talents and leverage our treasure for the sake of advancing the gospel. We need to leverage our jobs. Put our jobs on the altar. Leverage our jobs for the sake of the gospel. Leverage your hobby for the sake of the gospel. Our preferences for church. I plead with you. Leverage it for the sake of the gospel. Whatever it means for you or whatever it means for me today, whatever has to be done in my heart and in your heart towards making Jesus more known in and through our lives and through our church, we need to do whatever it needs to be done in our hearts to help North Park become increasingly a more mission-minded church. Jesus is the only hope for Orlando, for Baldwin Park, for Seminole and Orange County, for this world. There's no time for us to play church, to be distracted. We just need to simply, in good faith, pray together, serve together, and be willing to do whatever it takes to make sure people know that there is a way, that it is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one's coming to the Father except me. And if that be true, man, that should shadow everything. Color every